Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 23, 1 to 11, 14, 22, 26 to 28, 39 to 44, and Leviticus 24. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. For six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come to, into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day. Until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourself and present a fruit offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy greens and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven, seven days in, a, in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel and appointed the feast of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives from the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake, it, bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on each table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense, frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons and the people of Israel as a covenant 
and should be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debre, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who was cursed. And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner as and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for doing such a great job reading this morning. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Our passage this morning begins with God giving Moses a fairly unique set of commands. Now, I say unique because if you've been with us, over the last several weeks, we've been going through the second half of the book of Leviticus. The second half is sometimes referred to as the moral law portion of this book, where in the first half, God has been talking to the people about how they are to approach him, how they are to worship him, how they are to be clean before him. And in the second half, God is saying, now that you are in my presence, now that you are my people, here is how I want you to live. In fact, the probably most famous moral command in the entire Old Testament is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in the middle of all of this moral instruction, we reach chapter 23, and we have God giving some commands to Israel, but those commands don't sound moral. God is telling Israel, you need to rest. You need to have a feast. You need to get together and you need to celebrate. Now God takes this very seriously. This is not optional. This isn't do it if you feel like it. Look at verse 30 in chapter 23. God says, what? Whoever does any work on that very day, this is the day of atonement, that person I shall destroy from among his people. So God is taking this very seriously. 
He's saying that it is imperative, it is mandatory, that at certain times of the year, and indeed once a week on the Sabbath, every Israelite needs to stop. They need to pause. They need to gather for what the Bible calls a holy convocation, or other translations call it a sacred assembly. Now, every gathering has a few common elements. In every case, God calls Israel to either do no work at all, as he does in verse 3, when he talks about the Sabbath, or to do no ordinary work, any regular, daily, doing-your-business kind of work. And you see that in verse 7, when God talks about the Passover feast. So these are moments when every Israelite is called to take a step back from day-to-day -day life and to remember collectively everything that God has done for them. Every one of these feasts and these festivals is a festival of remembrance. It's like God is saying to the people of Israel, step back from your work and remember my work. Now, if we think about the world that we live in today, a world that is hyperactive, connected, frantic, competitive, a world that extols hustle culture and worships productivity to the point that we could almost call productivity the modern religion, we can see just how this idea of resting and remembering is incredibly relevant to our lives, even though these instructions are being given to a different people over 3,000 years ago. Now, each one of these feasts tells us something about the provision of God. One group focuses on God's past provision, the things that God has already done. In particular, we can think of the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those feasts are focused on the miracle of the Exodus. The Exodus is God miraculously and powerfully delivering the people of Israel, the people who lived in Egypt and were enslaved. They were held as forced labor by the most powerful nation on earth, and God arrives and frees them through a series of miracles, every one more powerful and more profound than the last. And the high point of that deliverance was the Passover, the moment when God struck down the firstborn son and the firstborn animal in every house in Egypt except those of the people of Israel. The people of Israel who put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. They were in a hurry. God had told them, you are leaving. This very night, you are going to leave Egypt. And so there was no time to put yeast in their bread and wait for it to rise. The bread needed to be unleavened. So we have a feast, a feast of Passover where we eat a lamb together to remember the lamb that God provided. And we eat the unleavened bread to remember that God's deliverance was immediate. It was immediate and it was compelling. 
So by eating a lamb every year at the Passover and by eating unleavened bread, God is commanding his people, remember the Exodus. Over and over in the Old Testament, as you read the prophets, when they are coming back and they are condemning Israel for its apostasy, the seminal event that they come back to over and over again is the Exodus, the deliverance of God. And the Passover lamb also points forward. For those of us who are Christians, we know that that lamb pointed forward to a greater lamb, a future sacrifice that was made during a Passover almost 2,000 years ago, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Just as the Israelites were called to remember their deliverance from Egypt, so we are called to remember our deliverance from slavery to sin by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This good news, the gospel of Jesus, should be a part of every gathering that we have as Christian people. Now there can be a misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian. It happens sometimes. We can fall into this idea that the gospel is how you become a Christian, but then, as you mature as a Christian, you sort of move on from the gospel to the, something bigger or deeper or more profound. Friends, there is nothing more profound than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our ambition as One Covenant Church that we never gather without the gospel being the foundation of every service we have. The entire Bible is about the gospel, and every single thing that we do in the Christian life should be built on and in and through this good news. Just as the Israelites are called to always be circling back to the Exodus, their freedom, so we are called always to be circling back to the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, another group of feasts focuses on God's ongoing provision. So if the Exodus is remembering what God has done for us in the past, the feasts associated with the harvest, the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, are associated with what God is doing for us today. Now, the Israelites right now are nomads. They're living in the wilderness in tents. But God is looking forward to a day when they are going to live in the land that he has promised them. He's promised them a rich land, a land that the Bible says is flowing with milk and honey. And when they live there, they're going to be farmers. This is an agrarian society, and they're going to bring in a harvest every year. And the harvest is the key time in an agricultural society for wealth creation. Your harvest determined how much stuff you had, how wealthy you were. We can see that even in the New Testament when Jesus gives a parable. He talks about a rich fool, a very foolish rich man, and the image he uses is what? A man who has a really big harvest. And at that time, what is God calling his people to do? He's saying, bring the first fruits of your harvest to me. In verse 14, 
God tells the Israelites, don't eat of your harvest until you bring the first fruits to God. What are we meant to remember? What were the Israelites meant to remember? Well, that everything they had belongs to God, that they are not owners of the wealth that God gives them, but they are stewards. Did you ever wonder why in our church service we always have giving? It's not because we couldn't collect money for the church any other way, right? Especially now, we could give to church anytime we want. We have giving of our tithes and offerings in our service because we recognize that giving is part of our worship. Just as Israel was called to bring their harvest before God, to recognize before God that everything belongs to him, so we are called to give to God when we gather for worship so that we recognize that everything we have comes from God. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. We show God that we trust him, not just that he's provided for us in the past, but that he is providing for us in the present. Now, there's one more feast that we should talk about that highlights God's provision, and in this case, it is God's undeserved provision. This is the Feast of the Day of Atonement in verses 26 to 32. Now, what we see here in these six verses is just a really short summary because in chapter 16 of Leviticus, God has already given much more detailed instructions about how the Day of Atonement is meant to be celebrated. But the primary purpose of this gathering is to remember that each Israelite is a sinner. The entire sacrificial system that we talked about at the beginning of Leviticus primarily points to the fact that every Israelite was a sinner and that God has given unmerited love, what we in Christianity call grace, to every one of them despite the fact that they are sinners. And the Day of Atonement provides a picture of just how God's grace works. In verse 28, God commands very strictly that no one do any work. You do not work to overcome your sin. God works to overcome your sin. You do not bear your sin. God bears your sin. In church, we do the same thing, don't we, every week? What do we do when we gather here? What did we just do 15 minutes ago? We had the confession of sin. We came together and we confessed before a holy God that we, even those of us who know the Lord Jesus, are still sinners. And as Jeremiah told us, we have the assurance of pardon, that by the blood of the Lord Jesus, we are cleansed. And so the Israelites saw this same picture by the blood, in that case, of goats and lambs. They saw a picture that pointed forward to the ultimate cleansing that would come with the Lord Jesus. When we hear the assurance of pardon, we know that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been borne by 
the Lord Jesus, not on the basis of our work, but on the basis of his work. Now we go on to chapter 24 and we see two key symbols that are meant to remind us that God is not just a God of the holidays. We have a God that is not just the God of Christmas. He is not just the God of Easter. He is the God of Tuesday at 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. First, light. At the beginning of chapter 24, we see that the priests are meant to keep a lamp burning with pure oil at all times. Every night, a light is to be kept burning. Why? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, In God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does Jesus say to the people of Israel? He says, I am the light of the world. The light of God is always with us. It is always present. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the second symbol is bread. Twelve loaves of bread, twelve tribes of Israel. What's the point? That God's provision is always present. Again, what society is this? It's an agricultural society, a society that depends on growing its own food. The light of God is always with you. The sustenance of God is always with you. What does the Lord Jesus say in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What do we do in church that celebrates the sustenance that we have in Jesus? Well, we're going to do it next week, aren't we? We have the sacrament of communion. In the sacrament of communion, what is it that we're doing? We're receiving the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus that sustains us. What do we say every time we have communion? We are keeping the feast. And indeed, we are keeping the ultimate feast, the feast toward which Every one of these festivals in Leviticus is pointing the feast that we will have with all believers with the Lord Jesus. So now we need to circle back to our opening question, which is, why does God consider this so important? Why talk about these festivals and about the Sabbath in such critical terms? As we said earlier, God is not making this optional. This is essential. Why command rest and remembrance and treat it so critically? Well, if we look back at the Exodus so far, and we look forward into the history of Israel afterwards, I think we can see why. On more than one occasion, what does Israel done already? They've lost faith. Already, they've wanted to go back to Egypt more than once. What is it that Israel said to Moses when they left Egypt and they reached the Red Sea? They turn around and they look at Moses and they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Then they run out of water and they run out of food. 
what do they do? What's the first thing they do? They turn around, they say, well, guess it's time to go back to Egypt. These people preferred literal bondage to trusting God in the wilderness. Now, it's easy for us to judge them. Very easy, as if we ourselves do not turn away from God over and over again to the idols of this world, to comfort, to popularity, to money, to self-righteousness. Not all slavery involves bricks and straw. Maybe the most insidious, actually, of all these is self-righteousness, isn't it? What was the Sabbath? It was God giving his people rest, a symbol of his love and his provision. And by the time Jesus walked this earth, what had it become? What had the religious authorities made it? They had made it a way to try and earn God's favor by following a bunch of rules. And of course, Jesus corrects them on that. What does he say? He says, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath. One of the hardest truths to accept in the Christian life is the one stated by Jonathan Edwards when he said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. If we do not rest in who God is and what he has done, we cannot live as God has commanded. And you can actually see this in a couple of places in our passage. The first one is in chapter 23. If you look at me at verse 22, right in the middle of all these instructions about feasts and festivals, here's what God says. He's talking about the harvest festivals, and in verse 22, he says this, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What's the point? You're coming together for a festival to do what? To celebrate that God is the one who provides you with everything, that you don't need to worry about being taken care of. And what does that enable us to do? It enables us to follow God's command, to be generous, to give. What are we doing when we hoard our belongings and hoard our wealth and we aren't generous? Well, we are not trusting God to meet our needs. Now, chapter 24, verses 10 to 15 are even more sobering. We have a man, he gets in a fist fight, and he blasphemes the name of God. Now, we do not know why this incident is recounted at this particular point in the book of Exodus, for sure. One likely reason is that this incident happened around the same time that Moses was receiving these laws. So here we have a person who is not making just some passing remark, who isn't just accidentally saying a curse word. This is someone who is intentionally 
cursing and belittling the God of Israel. And this punishment is swift and it is severe. This man gets stoned to death. Now, if we're honest, I think, we look at that and it seems a bit harsh, right? I mean, this is a person who lost his life because of something he said. But if we think very carefully about the history of Israel, I think we can see why blasphemy would have been taken this seriously in this time and in this place. Every time Israel takes God lightly, every time they turn away, there is no low to which Israel does not sink. And in fairness, there is no low to which we ourselves will not sink. The story of the Old Testament is a story of looking forward to Jesus, but it is also a story of failure. It is a story of a nation that turns away from God. And if you read the rest of your Old Testament, you will see cannibalism, you will see rape, you will see murder, you will see incest, and you will see child sacrifice. It always amazes me, sometimes you'll see people who say that the Bible is a nice story. Always is a sign to me that they haven't read it. The Bible is a true story. The Bible is an incredible story, and the Bible is the most joyful, ultimate story that has ever been told, but it is not a nice story. Jesus himself taught us that the most important commandment was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Blasphemy is serious. And even for us, we may not get stoned to death, but the consequences of us taking God lightly are still tragic. Now, Jesus also tells us that the second greatest commandment is what? Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that brings us to the end of our passage in verses 17 to 23. Now, you might be a little surprised to hear me say that. I'm saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and here I am, and I'm pointing you towards the passage that says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blow for blow. In Latin, it's called the lex talionis, which, frankly, I just wanted to say because Latin sounds really cool. Um, the principle, though, is not a savage one. It sounds savage to us with our modern ears, but this was actually a principle of judicial restraint. Ancient Near Eastern culture was a culture of retribution and escalation. When someone wronged you, you didn't just go try to get even, you go and try to get more, right? In modern terms, we might say, they come with fists, we come with knives. They come with knives, we come with guns, right? That was the principle of the society that Israel was living in. Loyalty was focused on your family and on your tribe. And also, what do we see here? You shall have one law, for the native and for the sojourner. Your loyalty is not to your bloodline, your loyalty is to God and to justice before God. Now, in Jesus' day, again, 
this principle, the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, this was a judicial principle. And it's important to note that we never see these punishments like eye for eye, tooth for tooth, being literally enacted in the history of Israel. You won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. So most likely, this is not talking about literally taking an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's talking about a principle that the punishment should fit the crime. And by Jesus's day, this principle had been, unfortunately, like the Sabbath, corrupted. People had taken this idea of judicial restraint and converted it into relational reciprocity. By Jesus's day, people thought an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth meant do to others as they do to you, right? It's not love your neighbor as yourself, it's love your neighbor if your neighbor loves you, right? And Jesus comes along and says, no, it is love your neighbor as yourself, as Leviticus says. Why does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone asks for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, he says that because if we love God, if we see the God who has saved us from our sins, the God who freed the Israelites in the Exodus, if we see the God who provided year after year for the Israelites and the God who provides for us year after year, you say, okay, you want my tunic? Here, have my cloak. God has saved me from all of my sins. God has forgiven me. You need to slap me? Okay, fine. You, God, have cared for me from the beginning of the world? Okay. In Jesus I have rest? All right, if I need to go two miles, I'll go two miles. Leviticus 23 is actually showing us how we live the Christian life. By resting and by remembering. Now, we no longer live in a world where God has mandated specific days for us to celebrate all that he has done. In the New Testament, Paul actually tells us to be a bit careful about that and getting too wrapped up in specifics. And probably the reason for that concern was what we just talked about, that the Sabbath in his day had become a very legalistic affair. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Christ is the substance, but the New Testament is still very much about resting and remembering. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, the author says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. And when, God, when Jesus instituted communion at the Last Supper, what did he say? He said, do this in remembrance of me. So we would do well to take stock of our lives and ask ourselves the following question. Are you resting? Are you remembering? 
we live in a frenetic world. Information overload, overstimulation, these are the norms of our lives. Now, we don't want to be legalistic, but we also don't want to ignore the fact that God has ordered our lives with a pattern, a pattern that says you work for a while and then you rest and you renew yourself. So I'm asking every one of us, how often do you stop? Lest anybody think I'm not pointing the finger at myself, let me tell you, nothing will make you want to not rest through your weekend quite like having children. Do you rest? Do you stop? Are we resting and trusting in the God who says he will sustain us? Or are we pushing harder every day? Are we saying with our actions, if not with our words, that we think everything comes down to us? What about remembrance? There's a quote I like a lot. I probably say it too many times in my sermons from a pastor named John Piper. Um, he says this, every morning when I wake up, I need to become a Christian all over again. Now, he's obviously not saying that he loses his faith every night when he goes to sleep, but he's making a really good point about the fact that we're not nearly as consistent or grounded in our faith as we think we are. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first information you take in? Social media? Work email? Guilty on both counts on many days? Or is it the Word of God? Ask yourself, what do you feed yourself when you wake up in the morning? What do you feed yourself at the start of the day? Are we grounding ourselves in the gospel? Because the entire Bible contains the gospel. So as we seek to love God and to fear God and to live our lives as we should, the Lord does not come to you and he doesn't come to me and say, try harder. What God does is he comes to us and he says, rest and remember. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you. that the security we have in the Lord Jesus does not depend on us. We thank you that you come to us and you offer us an easy burden, a light yoke, that you come to us that we may have life and have it to the full. Please, Father, grant unto us rest in who you are, in what you have done, and what you will do in Christ. Amen.